the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, what does it look like for Christians to stay anchored amongst the cultural debates of our time? And then we're joined by a teammate here, Pastor Jim Scudder, Senior Pastor of Quinton Road Baptist Church. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. All right, something we've been talking a lot about over the last, you know, a couple days leading up to this week is the Southern Baptist Convention going on. And we're not going to talk actually here about the Southern Baptist Convention, but something kind of that, that it, it exemplifies. And that is the kind of cultural revolution, everything kind of feeling unstable, the culture wars out there, uh, both in culture, but also in the church and yeah. all that's going on. And so I thought that would be an interesting spot to start. I was reading an article, the Gospel Coalition, uh, that I found really helpful. I wonder if you will as well. It just says this, in a cultural revolution, sit tight. And let me just read just a little bit uh, of this. It says... Uh, the cultural revolution we're living through is, can feel destabilizing and unnerving for everyone. For Christians, the temptation is to fiddle with our orthodoxy or orthopraxy so as to, quote, meet the moment. I'll go down further. It says, but Christians are a people of hope, a people whose imagination is shaped by the kingdom to come. That's a theological way to simply say Christians have perspective. Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson reminded us. The arc of history is long but bent towards justice, as Martin Luther King Jr. observed. Therefore, the church can offer a non-anxious presence to the world. We can offer such a presence by loving God and loving our neighbor in season and out. I found this, Aubrey, really a helpful perspective. I read it this morning as I was just kind of getting ready for my day. And it's this idea that everything does feel not only like it's constantly changing, but everything feels like, hot take on everything. You've got to have an idea about everything. You've got to answer to everything. And I'm I'm appreciative of this author saying, you know what? We have a calling and a long obedience in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And we're called to love God, love our neighbor. And therefore we can be a stabilizing, or as he says, a non-anxious presence in this world. Man, I really think that's an opportunity for the church. I find that to be a helpful call. What do you think? Uh, you know, there, there's a old metaphor about how, you know, the, the sea is rocky and you can either be in the sea being moved by the waves or you can be the one on the shore. Mm. And I feel like this is sort of that call. Like, let us in the middle of all of the the battles happening on Twitter, or all of the opinions about good things or bad things, good opinions or bad opinions. Like, but just like you said, all of the hot takes that are happening constantly What if we choose not to wade in those waters and instead stand on the shore, get some perspective and be like that anchored person? And I I'm increasingly even being convicted about my own social media. Like, am I responding to something in the moment because I'm Mm. really mad and I or am I like 
pausing and saying like, does this contribute to the kingdom of God or not? Will I regret this, you know, 10 years from now or not? And does this move things forward in the name of Jesus in a really positive way or not? And the hard part is, Brian, you kind of touched on this. It seems like there's pressure to say everything about everything. And if you don't, then I I don't know if people think you don't care or you don't. It's like if you don't say it on social media, it's not true about you. But that's not accurate either. That's right. That's right. Um, Anyway, I don't know the point I was saying about that. Just that we do have to be, we have to offer something else to the world, even the social media world. That's right. And and he says here, the call of Christ isn't a strategy. It's a cross. And mm. if you wish to follow him, you must pick it up. Wow. Uh, and, and talks about living backwards. I so love that Eugene Peterson phrase, and we've said it so often on the show, that we go in a long obedience in the same direction. Right. right. Everything feels, especially in our social media world, like it changes and changes and changes. And you have to, like we said, you have to have a take on everything and you have to stand up for this, but you know, we have to stand up for that and this and that. And it's just a reminder. It doesn't mean you don't, you know, stand up for what is right. It doesn't mean you're not vocal. Uh, but what it does mean is a, uh, this is a helpful reminder that, you know, I'm called to two primary things in my life. I am called to, Love the Lord with all my heart, mind, and soul. Yeah. And I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. That's right. And, and that, that when that becomes the lens through which I look at things, I then can start to differentiate. Okay, I'm going to enter into this, but I'm not going to enter into that. And, uh, you know, he talks about in this article that, uh, that we're called to be light. And that Mm -hmm. we call the culture to change as opposed to culture calling the church to change, Mm -hmm. right? And and I really find that helpful. And so how does it change your day-to-day as you get this perspective of just a long obedience in the same direction? You know, I'm still thinking about social media, which I know is not the only you know, that's not the only place where you obey, have that long obedience in the same direction. But because that feels like so reactionary and so in the moment, that's where my mind goes to. Uh, you know, last week we had on Christine Kane. And one of the things that I have learned from her, if, if you actually watch her on social media, when there's any church controversy, when there's any, you know, fallen leader, when there's any, you know, Christians getting angry at each other because of this, she literally doesn't respond. She just keeps saying, Jesus loves you, or you have a purpose in this life, or Mm. keep going for the kingdom, or don't give up. And to me, that's what this speaks of. Like, Keep your eyes set on the prize, right? Of That's right. The upward call of God in Christ. Keep your eyes set on Jesus. And even in social media, keep your words set on Jesus so that you can, as this um, author talks about, offer that non-anxious presence to the world. Because it's so easy. I mean, I- I'm so tempted by this to get swept up in the current controversy and say, that's wrong or this, you know, and to maybe just step back and go, okay, sometimes there are times to use our voice and right. stand up for things. That's right. Uh, we have to. Um, God would want us to. But then there are times just not to ride that wave to stay uh, peaceful and present and focus on what matters. And that's Jesus Christ above all else. That's a good word. So I thought that's how we'd begin today because you could just get caught up in all that's going on around us and just kind of ups and downs. And I said, no, you know what? There's a long obedience in the same direction. 
and we can we can hold tight. We can love God. We can love our neighbor, uh, and the church can look different as we can. Well, coming up next, uh, Pastor Jim Scudder, senior pastor of Quinton Road Baptist Church. Uh, they're going to be holding the conference called the Grace Conference coming up here a little bit later in June. We're excited to be joined by Pastor Scudder, who also has a show here on AM eleven sixty. We're excited to talk to Pastor Scudder next here on the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you joining us today. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by a teammate here on AM 1160. He's the senior pastor of Quinton Road Baptist Church in Lake Zurich, Illinois. Uh, also the hosts of In Grace, which you could hear every weekday at 4 a.m. and 10 a.m., Right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. That is Pastor Jim Scudder. Jim, how are you doing today? Hey, good, Brian and Aubrey. Good to uh, be with you guys. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you with us. Hey, before we jump in, we got lots to talk to you about, including the Grace Conference that you're hosting. Uh, Also want to talk to you about your radio show. But before we do that, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little better? Yeah, well, I am first and foremost a pastor. Um, I love that uh, call on my life. It was, uh, I guess when I was 16 at a camp, I'd always loved aviation, thought of being a pilot or maybe a missionary pilot so I could, you know, still serve the Lord and pursue that thing that I loved as a kid. Hmm. Uh, But, you know, God's call was to be a pastor, which I didn't see how that would ever, ever link up with uh, flying. So, (laughs) you know, I'm yours and, you know, whatever you want for me is fine with me. I went to Bible college and uh, became a pastor. I pastored at Westchester Bible Church for five years. And then uh, my dad, who had founded our church, Quentin Road Baptist in Lake Zurich, Illinois, he uh, he had had a, a heart episode, a near heart attack, a five-way bypass surgery. Oh, wow. And so the leadership of Quentin Road said, you know what, I think you're going to need to come back and co-pastor uh, mm. that your dad, because dad was he, he wasn't done. Uh, he was, you know, he was only in his 60s, uh, but they knew that he couldn't, you know, sustain the same schedule. So uh, I did. I came back and um, and pastored with him for 10 years. And I think some of uh, some of our listeners might have heard it. It was, I think, one of the only father son tag team preaching tag teams ever. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, so he would, it, it was fun. We would actually go through the same book. We, we love expository preaching. So we'd go this, through the same book, uh, wherever he would end, I would start. Oh, that's, that's great. But yeah, you better, you better have the same theology if you're going to do that. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? <laughs> so, then he, uh, so then he fully retired about five years ago and I became the pastor. And then unfortunately he passed away a little over a year ago. Oh, uh, I'm so sorry. sorry to hear that. But uh, we're doing well. I'm, you know, I'm thrilled that he's, he's finally got to see Jesus. And mm. that's, that's my story. Uh, um, and part of the story is God um, about, I think 12 or 15 years ago allowed me to get my pilot's license and we (gasps) for, you know, going speaking and promoting our college and different things like that. And actually filming uh, in grace episodes. So we do TV and radio. Uh, So we've been able to use aviation um, in ministry too. Oh, 
I love that. I love when God sort of puts a dream in our heart and then makes it come true in unexpected ways. That's pretty incredible. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, Pastor Jim, we have a lot to talk to you about, but one of the things we definitely want to hit on is the Grace Conference, which is on June 24th and June 25th. Listeners, you can find out more at graceconference.com. But could you tell us a little bit about the history of the conference? How did it get started? Well, I, I'm trying to think. It was probably at least 15 years ago. Um, you know, there's there's been a debate within Christianity um, on the gospel. What is the gospel? And it obviously goes back in way way back in church history. But uh, we we've always erred on the side of grace. We don't want we don't want ever to add anything to the gospel, which the Bible actually warns us. It's it's you know it's by grace. It can't be by works. We can't even have the hint of works in the gospel because it's it's by God's grace. And so we had uh, theologian Charles Ryrie in our first grace conference and some others. And it's just been, you know, I think the issue is still around, but we still want to promote grace. And I, I actually think the first uh, grace conference was in the early church when people were trying to add works and circumcision into the gospel. And mm. the conference in Jerusalem and they came out of it and said, no, it's by grace. You know, so. Right. That's that's the heart of the conference, but it's really a it's a conference that encompasses lots of things. Yeah, it's a Bible conference, really, and we just love having it. Uh, last uh, Thursday and Friday of June last year, we had to do it uh, online, which is not the same. <laughs> really excited about being able to do it this year. Absolutely, and Jim, obviously, you're one of the keynote speakers. Uh, I'm wondering, and I know it's always dangerous to ask a pastor because you got still a few weeks to figure this out. It's June 24th and 25th, but I wonder what you'll be speaking on. What has God laid on your heart that you're going to share at the conference? Uh, I did a study recently on grace and just you know looking at looking through scripture uh, topically, and I found seven what I'm calling seven grounds for grace, and just going through. Some of those things, uh, like God is the God of all grace, First Peter 5. Salvation is by grace. Obviously, mm -hmm. we know that, Ephesians 2.8. And, and just go through through those seven things, grounds for grace. Um, and I'm actually going to tell this little story. And um, so if you're coming to the Grace Conference, pretend that you haven't heard this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a man dies and goes to the pearly gates. Now, we all know that that's not in the Bible, but let's just, right, read right, it, right. right. And Jesus is standing there and he's going to explain how we're going to get in. He says, you need a hundred thousand points to make it into heaven. So tell me all the good things you've done. So the man starts listing. He said, well, I was married to the same woman for 50 years. I never cheated on her, even in my heart. And Jesus said, well, that's wonderful. That's one point. <laughs> he says, wow, one point. Well, I've attended church my whole life. I've supported the ministries with my tithes, my services. And Jesus says, terrific. That's another point. Well, he's like, how am I ever going to get into heaven? And then he says, well, I, I started a soup kitchen in my city. I worked in the shelter for homeless veterans. And Jesus said, well, that's one more point. <laughs> at this rate, the only way I'm going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. And Jesus says, come on in. Uh, so it is, it, we have, we have no, I mean, we have, we don't even have three points and heaven is worth more than a hundred thousand points. Right? All right, right, right. <laughs> right. Like, we can never, ever, ever, obtain eternal life on our own. Mm -hmm. um, and it has nothing to do with us other than putting our trust, our faith in Jesus, who's done it all on the cross, the son of God who died and rose again. That's right. 
So that's the Grace Conference. And we that's celebrate right. that. And, and we just, you know, it's it's a Bible conference. We have we, we talk about Bible prophecy. We talk about, you know, church growth. It's not just for pastors, but certainly it's a pastors really love it or church leadership really loves it because they can learn. You know, we have idea sessions. So like it's instead of a workshop where one guy's talking, it's all these people kind of in a round circle coming up with uh, this has worked in our area. Here's ideas mm. you know, for ministry. Oh, that sounds so great. Sounds like it'll be a wonderful event. Again, you can register at graceconference.com. So Pastor Scudder, I want to switch topics a little bit because you have a radio show also here on AM 1160. It's every weekday at 4 a.m. and 10 a.m. What are some of the topics that you've been talking about recently on your show in Grace? Well, God bless those that listen at 4 a.m. Really? That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a listener at 4 a.m. And a lot of our, God bless our listeners, they think I'm up at 4 a.m. doing this. <laughs> no, 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 no. I do this weeks ahead. So anyways, um, in Grace, you know, on radio, it's uh, Monday through Thursday. It's expository Bible teaching. So we've been going through Genesis and Origins, and we're talking about creation and the flood and all of these awesome things. I get to hang around a lot of those that uh, promote uh, creation uh, and, you know, uh, be able to go interview these people. Um, we've recently done episodes on the Ark in Kentucky, the full-size Ark. Everyone mm. loves going there. And, and mm-hmm. uh, Ken Ham, son-in-law, and uh, he gave us uh, an, an amazing uh, tour of that full-size Ark, Bodhi Hodge. And then we actually interviewed Ken Ham at the Creation Museum uh, so there's all sorts of things that we're doing. And then on Fridays um, and on the weekend edition of our program, we step out of the pulpit and we'll go actually to these locations. So we'll take our TV show, which is on TBN every Tuesday. And we we're on some other stations. We're on here in Chicago um, on TLN. But we'll take that TV show and re-edit it and make it an, a, an audio version, a radio version. Cool. So we've, we've gone to Auschwitz. We've gone to... Wow. in Israel, you know, we've, we've actually interviewed one of the few remaining people that walked on the moon. Uh, <gasps> wow. Charlie Duke. So we, we've had, we've had some really great adventures. So it's a Christian adventure TV and radio um, other than Monday through Friday. And that's expository Bible preaching. That's great. I like that Christian adventure radio. That's really good. Again, That's Pastor great. Jim Scudder is the senior pastor of Quinton Road Baptist Church in Lake Zurich. He's also the host of In Grace weekdays at 4 a.m. and 10 a.m. here on AM 1160. But we want to point you to the Grace Conference that that will be happening at Quinton Road Baptist Church on June 24th and June 25th. Uh, you can go to graceconference.com. Again, that's graceconference.com. Uh, it'll be well worth your time to be a part of that as we've been talking about the Grace Conference. Go ahead over there and register at graceconference.com. And you can also learn more about In Grace with Pastor Jim Scudder at ingraceradio.com. That's ingraceradio.com. Jim, it's always great to have you on. Thanks for spending some time yeah, with us thanks today. thanks so much, Jim. Hey, thank you so much, Aubrey. Um, and listen, you guys keep up the good work, Brian. I love the program, The Common Good. I love that title. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Again, go to graceconference.com and check it out. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a 
a hot Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, I know. I was like just complaining about how it's so cold it'll never get warm, and all of a sudden I'm like, ah, oh, it's so hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those I don't remember the two weeks of spring, but they were here. And as we talked about. Went. As we talked about on yesterday's show, uh, we are less than a week away. Monday, you are going to lead your first show since becoming uh, part of the common good. Woo! Uh, you you all can pray for me starting now. Brian has uh, jury duty. And yes. I will be, my husband, Kevin, is joining. We're going to have a lot of fun. But I do, you know, Brian's kind of my, like, crutch. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. That's my new nickname. I don't know what to. <laughs> have you ever had jury duty, by the way? Never. I've kind of, I've never even gotten I've kind of wanted to. I I know, but now I'm scared of like I I kind of want to for one day, but I don't yeah. want like uh anything of any distance. Like you're like, "Oh my gosh, this that would change my life in such a bad way right now." Oh, yes, you can I will not allow it. I'm like praying so. day one. I mean, unless you need to do your civic duty, I will allow that, but hopefully <laughs> hopefully you don't. Hopefully day one is all you need. And so Aubrey is going to lead the show on Monday with her husband. And so we're just going to see how that goes. I, I look forward to listening. I'm, I'm ready to listen. <laughs> we're going to air a lot of our marital grievances. On- <laughs> It'll be a counseling session. <laughs> yesterday, yesterday we said you can't do that from the pulpit, but you're like, I can do it on a radio show. But I'm show. doing it on the radio show. <laughs> I'm doing it on the air. <laughs> no, um, we're going to have fun. It's going to be a great time. It will be. It will be. And hopefully I only miss one day. If I'm not here on Tuesday, you know what I'm doing. There I am just aye, deciding, aye, aye. The fate, deciding the fate of some defendant out there in DuPage County somewhere. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, man. Yes, that is something. That is something. So anyway. Uh, all right. I saw something kind of flying around Twitter the other day uh, that is uh, it's kind of an it's got a lot of what's going on kind of um, baked into it. So at the core of it is um, this idea of wokeness, this idea of uh, racism and the church and and what is our role. And at the heart of it is the guy by the name of Owen Strachan. Uh, and for people who don't know who Owen Strachan is, uh, he's an author. Uh, I believe he is like in, in, uh, up in higher education, uh, all of these different things. And, and he has begun writing over the last year. Uh, he wrote a book about the gospel and quote unquote wokeness. He started a, uh, conference that happened last week called the gospel and wokeness. And it's, it's, he's really become, one of the Christian voices, if you will, against what he proclaims as wokeness, as what he sees as wrong with the church. And baked into that, again, is critical race theory and Marxism, you know, all the key words, right? right. We're just <laughs> Love them all them, together. Yep. We're going to throw them all in. Well, what started flying around Twitter after, because if you listen to his like keynote speech from the conference the other day, I mean, it is right out of like, you know, um, to be honest with you, kind of farther right wing political speech is kind of okay. how it felt. How okay. it felt. Gotcha. Uh, and, you know, maybe he really believes it. Maybe not. I don't know. But yeah. then what started going around was a article that comes out from 2014 uh, from Patheos. And the, the premise of the article, this article came out just after um, Michael Brown and Eric Garner, if you might remember those deaths. Yes. Uh, and it was entitled this with tears on racism and the gospel. And let me just read you some of what the author of this, uh, article wrote. The author wrote, uh, 
it, this means two things. It means we recognize our unity in Christ first. There is much that white Christians can do to foster unity. One of the first steps seems to be seeking to understand what life is like for minorities in majority cultures. Second, our justification means that we plunge into our world as those who have now a foretaste of heaven. Uh, we cannot content ourselves with the status quo. In our local churches, we actively pursue justification-inspired racial reconciliation. Later on, the author of this article in 2014 speaks about there being systems that need to be torn down and a racist past uh, and the failings of the church in the past. Uh, and it goes on to say this, racism is a gospel issue, but it stands no chance before Christ. Like that, that as Christians, we must tackle the issue of racism. Uh, and so it goes kind of against everything that this conference just did and this and that. And let me tell you what, why this was flying around. That article in 2014 was written by Owen Strachan. Hmm. And people then were going to Twitter this week going, well, what changed? Did yeah, what he, happened? Is this, was this a strategic move? Does he not believe this anymore? Uh, and the premise of some of these articles was also that like, no, the call hasn't changed. Uh, he's changed. And, and so Aubrey, I, I thought I don't have a direct, uh, I don't have a, a great question to ask except to go, how do you process somebody who wrote in 2014 that there are systems of racism, that the church must take this up, the church must be a leader, and then in 2021 is headlining and writing a book on wokeness and the gospel? Can, can that just be, well, he's uncomfortable with where the conversation's gone? I know we're speaking for him or something else. And then I want to turn this to what do we believe the church's role amongst all of this noise how does the church become not just a calming influence, but a, but a, uh, a place of healing? But what do you think when you just hear that story, that kind of background? I mean, okay. I, I actually have kind of mixed feelings about it. One, okay. I, of course, I'm disappointed that Owen Strawn, I think that's actually how you pronounce his oh, last was I name. Basic, yeah. Was I just totally butchering his last name? Well, it's, it's hard because his last name is S. T-R-A-C-H-N, but it's actually pronounced straw. which, you, for that. you know, he needs to spell it differently. <laughs> it's not your fault, right? It's his fault. Um, okay, so I'm disappointed that he's gone to where he has gone with this. I will say that because I think in 2014, he was on the correct gospel side of things. Um, that said, I'm going to sound really wishy-washy, but hear me out. People change their minds a lot. You're right. And so I, I, though I disagree with where he has landed, it is not shocking to me that in 2015 or 2014, he said one thing. And now in 2021, he's saying something else. Mm. We all do this. Like you have read something I wrote five years ago, six years ago. I might think differently about that now. So I have actually no problem with this. I think it's a little unfair to pull out something he wrote six years ago and call him out on that. Because again, if we're growing, adapting, transforming human beings, life experience or the people we're around or whatever, our motivations change. Maybe he's running for a Republican office. Who knows? You know? <laughs> um, but the more important question to me is, what should the church be doing? And I, I'm, again, a record on repeat here, but like, I... I'm so tired of just someone being called woke because they're saying racism is bad. Mm -hmm. Like the Bible is clear that God hates racism. All people are created in the image of God. Like this should not be a controversy amongst Christians. I really am like baffled by this. We should be at the forefront of fighting for equality, of listening, of lamenting, of building bridges 
making systemic and systematic changes for the minority people that we are friends with, that are our neighbors, that live in our country. Like, it's a no-brainer. White supremacism is evil. Like, in Jesus' name, it's evil. And so I... I just, I think I'm over like woke, anti-woke. I just, I'm done with the name calling because it's all a distraction from the work that needs to happen. Yeah, I think that's well put. I think that you're right. We've begun to just label things as a way to stop having the conversation because around the conversation of of race, there's a lot of really important conversations like yeah. uh, that, that well-meaning people can disagree with mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that you and I probably disagree with or right. you and our listeners or me and our listeners. Like there's, but when all we do is just label things to kind of shut down the conversation that doesn't move anything forward. Right. Uh, but instead, well-meaning Christians need to be able to sit across the table from each other uh, and just say, Hey, what is the answer? How do we, how are we part of a solution within a, within a culture that just seems not very uh, interested in having solutions, Yeah, but seems more interested in yelling at each other. And, and uh, you know, I I just think, yeah, I, you know, the, the, to read what he wrote, I think you make a fair point that, that we change our minds and we write things and we change, but man, this is such a far move he's made. It's sad to me that he has made that move. It's, it's hard to understand sort of what his influence is and why, but. And there are, there are great, as we said, as we end this up, there are great debates to be had over critical race theory, over uh, systemic versus it, all these kinds of things. But to just throw titles on things and go, therefore, we won't listen to each other. Right, that's, right, that's, right. That's anti-Christian. Christian right. is to be, hey, we want the betterment of all people. So let's have these conversations. And so I thought right. that was an interesting thing flying around Twitter uh, for us to talk about. Speaking of Twitter, I'm going to read. I, we haven't done this in a while. I'm just going to read two tweets that I oh. thought uh, were were interesting. Uh, and I would just like to get your take on them. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, Aubrey, something I, I spend too much time on Twitter. We've discussed this before. Twitter tends to be my social media uh, platform of choice. Right. Uh, and that's like where you get your news too, right? Right. My sports news, my, my news. News. What, how else would I know what's going on at the Southern Baptist Conference this week? <laughs> that's true. You're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, but I tend to spend a lot of time there. So every now and then I just kind of collect tweets that stood out to me and go, let's just we- read these tweets and kind of, uh, reflect on them. And, uh, so I want to start with somebody uh, who kind of, you know, we've got this short list of people that we want to on our show. I would say this, this person is on our short list. Her name is Beth Moore. Uh, never heard of her. Never heard of her. <laughs> we want all the Moors. We want Beth Moore. We want Russell, Russell Moore. <laughs> we want, we want all the Moors. Uh, and so, uh, Beth Moore, I'm sure everybody out there knows who she is. Prolific author, speaker, uh, but now is quite the pontificator on Twitter. Uh, I'm sure her name will come up a couple times at the Southern Baptist Conference this week. Bless Let's her heart. My guess is that's true. <laughs> right. So I'm going to read her tweet and I want you to crawl into Beth Moore's mind here and go, what do you think she means? Uh, and what do we do with this? Do we agree with what she said here? All right. Here it is. She wrote uh, just a couple hours ago this morning. She wrote any coward could call himself or herself a Christian, but following Jesus takes guts. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, let me read that one more time while you figure out what you think about it. She okay. said, any coward can call himself or herself a Christian, but following Jesus takes guts. All right. Crawl into the mind of Beth Moore. Unpack that tweet for us, Aubrey. What do you think about it? Oh, man. I mean, I think she's right because there's all all sorts of folks who say, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. But the reality is, are they, and I include myself in this, are we uh, picking up our cross and following him? Mm-hmm. Are we dying to self daily? Are we, um, you know, living a sacrificial life? Are we living a cruciform life? And the fact that it does take boldness to do that because it's much easier, I think, not to follow Jesus in mm-hmm. this cultural climate, but to follow Jesus faithfully, to follow his teachings, to follow his way, to stay committed to Christian community. I mean, it it takes boldness and again, it it takes sacrifice. That's right. So th- I I it this is interesting. I mean, my guess is the subtext of this has something to do with the Southern Baptist Convention, <laughs> but I don't know that for sure. I can't. That's you know, that's complete. A hair say I don't know that. So, there's, what do you think about it? I think I think there's a chance that that is true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this idea, I, I, I'm really kind of drawn to the second part of her tweet that uh, that to be a Christian to follow Jesus takes quote guts, and and I that's the part that I really want to unpack because as you said, there's. It, it does become to label ourselves Christian is one thing, right? Like that has uh, religious connotations in our culture. It has political connotations. It has all sorts of uh, cultural connotations. But to say, you know what, to follow Jesus, to, like you said, take up his cross, to live in the way that he has instructed us to live, to follow after him as Lord, it really does take guts. And the reason I think she can say, and I would agree that it takes guts, is that's when our faith becomes completely countercultural, mm-hmm. is when we're actually following him, not just proclaiming him with our mouth, which is important, but saying, you know what? And, and therefore, uh, Jesus is going to be Lord over my entire life. And so I'm going to follow him in everything, right? With my money, with how I treat other people, with the lenses through which I see the world, all, all sorts of things. And she's right. That does take guts because it kind of puts a spotlight on yourself in front of other people that says, oh, that person lives differently. Why? Uh, what is going on at the heart of that? Why do you think, uh, and then I'll move on to the second tweet I've got yeah. here, but, but why do you think it takes guts? If she's right, what, what is it, where does it require courage or to, mm. to, to use her phrase guts to actually follow Jesus as opposed to just calling myself a Christian? You know, it, I, I it brings to mind James, I think it's chapter two, right? Where James is saying, uh, hey, even the demons believe in God, right? The the difference between the demons and the faithful person is faith with deeds, faith mm. in action. And I think that takes guts because um, sometimes it's like right now, uh, you know, it, it, with everything happening with the SBC, sometimes it takes guts in front of people who are calling themselves Christian. So mm-hmm. it's not just like you against the world. Sometimes it can feel like you against other people that claim that they follow Jesus. Mm. And again, I'm looking at the plank in my own eye. You know, I, I'm as much a hypocrite as anybody else. And so I am not trying to judge anyone here in a way that I'm not judging myself. But I, I do think it that can feel scary when you're like, oh, wait, 
I have to stand up for the things that are right, not just in front of people that are opposed to the gospel, but people who say that they are carers of the gospel themselves. That's right. And there is something, the difference between standing up to an enemy and standing up to like a friend there, that does take courage to stand up to a friend. Mm, That's a, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about it in relationship that way with like those closest to us uh, and where that can become uncomfortable. If we're right, that that generally speaking, our culture and in some ways, our church cultures are moving away from the calls of Jesus. Right, and, right. Uh, away from uh, the way he called us to live. Then it absolutely whenever we're calling ourselves or others to live in a way opposite of the majority, it's going to take guts. Exactly. It's always easier to fall in line. Uh, and and that includes within our churches and within our Christian movements. Okay. This kind of, we touched on this already, but uh, earlier in the show, but I want to do it uh, with this tweet. This is from Thomas Kidd, history professor, uh, author. He wrote, he blogs at the Gospel Coalition. He says this, the most depressing thing about woke and anti-woke Christian, and you use Christian in, in uh, quotes, extremism is how many people have obviously gone extreme as a branding decision to monetize their views and it works. I read that and I was like, because you and I read so much now for this show and we kind of do this stuff. I do think he's on to something. And I just wanted to kind of highlight it is the fact that there are really big buzzword, just like certain people in the political world have gone to extremes because they know there's a lot of money to be made out there and a name to be made. Yeah, It's happening in the Christian world as well. Mm. People moving to extremes, people moving to polls, people moving as far away, uh, demonizing the other side. Uh, And I'm not suggesting they don't believe what they're doing, but I would also suggest that there's a lot of money and a branding to be done. Certainly. And doesn't it feel so dirty every time that you just acknowledge and talk about the Christian world and quote unquote branding? (laughs) I think this is this is like pretty bothersome because the the publishing houses or the uh, big time speaking events or the you know, the things that do pay are rewarding this sort of behavior. And so then it feeds that sort of behavior, right? Because it is the extremists who get the following, they get their platform, they get the book deals, they get that. And so I, I, this, you know, we talked uh, several weeks ago with Chris Bale at Duke University, who's leading the charge at the polarization lab. And they're really trying to change the whole algorithm to say like, let's actually start rewarding the moderates or the people who are, thinking, um, you know, not just taking hot takes, but actually thinking meaningfully through issues. Uh, and it, it, Yeah, it, it's hard, too, I think, because those are the interesting people to follow on Twitter, the it's, extremists, you know yes. what I mean? And so even I have to be like, all right, who am I following? Are they are they thinking through things meaningfully? Are they, are they giving life to the things they're tweeting about, or are they just saying, like we've talked about before in the show, hot takes in order to get attention? And how am I feeding into that whole problem? Absolutely. That's well put because I do. I read that tweet and I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's true. And like you said, look at the plank in our own eye, right? Like, is there things that I do in order to stand out or to quote unquote brand myself? I think uh, both of these tweets taken together remind us that the way of Jesus is not a marketing move. Mm. Uh, it's, it takes courage, especially yeah. within our cultural context. And the question before all of us is, 
will we follow him? You know, right? Jesus says, come and follow me. That's it, right. is a, a, it is a simple call, but a very difficult lifestyle. And I think Beth Moore and Thomas Kidd help us see that. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the pandemic, uh, something out of Elmhurst Hospital, and also remembering and reflecting how hard the pandemic was and some of the things we learned from it. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're reflecting on the COVID crisis a year later and discussing some new interesting stats about marriage that are coming out of the Barna Research Group. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I am Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and it is a lovely Tuesday afternoon, although I keep getting confused about what day of the week it is because it's summer. That's actually my favorite thing about summer is you don't have to know what day it is. I had that somebody got retired once and they said one of the best things, but one of the hardest things when I was talking to them, they said is every day is Saturday, right? Like, you remember when (laughs) you're a kid and you get up on Saturday and just be like, I don't know, what are we doing today? I don't know. Uh, And that that was like one of the best things, but also one of the hardest things. And that's always how I feel in summer, especially for our kids. Like, I don't know. What are you doing today? Uh, you know, and then right, like, right. us adults are like, I got to go to work. <laughs> oh, I know. Don't you sort of miss it? The yeah. days when you didn't have to know what day it was. I that's think right. that's like one of the great joys of childhood for sure. I wanted to take a minute um, right now and talk about COVID, which I know we're all sort of, we don't really want to talk about COVID anymore, that's right? right? but it has been a year Um, since really one of those first horrific waves of COVID. And there's a hospital in Brooklyn, New York called Elmhurst Hospital where the COVID crisis was at its worst. I don't know if you remember on the news, Brian, but we were seeing pictures of bodies being carried out. And I mean, it was just devastating to watch. And I think that's when all of us were kind of going, what is happening? What is this? I had a friend who was a nurse in New York City at the time in Mm. Long Island. I guess it wasn't New York City, but she was just like, it feels like a war zone right now. Yeah. Go ahead, Brian. I just remember watching, and I think actually the Elmhurst Hospital is in Queens, because I remember we interviewed Mm. Rich Velotis, who was like, that's the hospital he lived right by, the pastor out in Queens. Oh, okay. And I remember the, the pictures I remember what made it so scary for those who don't live in New York was like that was the time where we felt like, okay, New York, it's happening there, but it's just we're a month or two where this is going to happen everywhere. And, yeah. you know, thankfully that didn't end up being the case. But I right. remember early on March, April, May, when that was happening out in New York City, where it was just like, well, it's just a matter of time before that's Chicago. It's exactly. just a matter of time then before it moves to the suburbs. And so that's what made it so hard to watch that. Because, you know, you'd see, I mean, not to be too graphic, but I mean, they remember they were literally putting bodies in like in like trucks because they they, were. the morgue was completely full yes. of the hospital. Yes. And you're just projecting going, is that going to be what we're going to be oh. dealing with here in a month? I just remember that was just when it was really overwhelming at that point, because also with all of the uncertainty with it at that point. Yeah, exactly. It was so terrifying to watch. Well, some of the hospital staff at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens um, is reflecting on the year and some of the, of course, the devastation, but also some of the things that they learned and saw. So I, I'd love for us to listen to a little bit of audio because I think it's important for us to reflect on what we've all been through and then to begin to look forward. So let's go ahead and listen to that. 
And I remember just coming in and just sitting in the parking lot for a little bit to just catch a breath, to just prepare myself to come inside. This has affected me emotionally because I see how serious this disease is and how many people have lost their lives to it. That's going to always stay in my head. It will never leave. We've lost a lot of people that we loved really dearly, a couple of nurses from the ED and um, the units. I mean, these people we see every day, and these people are family to us. You know, I've learned that this community is resilient. You have to be grateful for everything you have because it can be taken away so quickly. To see the resilience of staff and patients, the outpouring support was great from the community. The one thing I can say I took away from the pandemic is that we as humans can come together to help each other. Okay, so they talk about, of course, how, I mean, just you know, one of the people saying they're sitting in the parking lot, just taking a moment to catch their breath before mm-hmm. they could even go inside again. But then uh, they end with talking about gratitude and they end talking about how resilient they found that they were and how supportive the community was. And I, you know, Brian, I was just kind of thinking between us, we've had a not the same experience that they've had, but all of us have been through really quite a year. And I wonder for you looking back a year later, um, you know, are there lessons you feel like you've learned because of the pandemic? Yeah, there's a couple of them. Uh, one is, um, and thankfully nobody in my family got sick. And yeah. so I understand, I always feel like I need to caveat this going, Hey, like I understand that for those of you who got really sick or God forbid lost a loved one right. in this, like that's a whole nother level. But for those of us who didn't, I think there are a couple of things that I learned. Uh, one was, uh, we think we control everything in our lives, right? Like we know that we don't, but we live like we do. Yeah. Uh, and especially early on when everything was getting closed, whether, you know, it was our churches or it was a kid's schools or programs or, you know, you couldn't even go out to eat, whatever it was. I remember this f- weird feeling of like, wow, we're like, we can't control these things. Like this is out of our control at the moment. Maybe we yeah. don't know everything about everything. And, And I thought that I remember that being really disconcerting, like, okay, uh, I think that's okay. I don't know. What what do we do with that? You know, like that was very new because we're used Mm -hmm. to a world, especially here in the West, where, okay, if I, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps or if I just come up with a new strategy, if I just this or that, we're good to go. And and that wasn't the case here. It was kind of out of our control. But two, uh, with kind of the found time, remember, we just all had so much more time at home. I just realized again how much I like my family. <laughs> like <laughs> That's true. Yeah. On a positive side, I remember like you were into forced uh, just being together and all the things that kept us busy were stripped away. Uh, and, and now looking back, I, I don't want to go back to that time. But you are like, no. man, our family was in a good spot there. We mm-hmm. did OK. And, and and so I'll always that will always be a positive. But to to hear the voices of these frontline workers oh. who are at the front of the front lines there at Elmhurst yeah. Hospital in the Queens in Queens, uh, saying talking about uh, we were more resilient than we ever thought we could be, mm. and about the the importance of the community. I found those to be powerful as they look back. Like, hey, we were completely beaten down, but we survived. Yeah. We yeah. made it. We did okay. 
that resiliency from people at that spot, I, I find to be really powerful. I do too. I mean, it was quite emotional to watch because of course, like like you, I mean, Kevin and I aren't frontline workers. So we did know some people who died, but we were not even close to what these nurses and doctors were seeing and, and carrying every single day. But it was emotional to watch thinking that we've been through this or emotional li- to listen to thinking, man, I mean, sometimes I forget, like we have all been through this communal tragedy. And it, I mean, it is quite devastating to think about what they faced. But I agree with you. There's something very inspiring about those at the heart of death and the heart of illness, like those at the very center of the crisis, finding that they had strength they didn't know they had and finding that they had the support from people around them. I mean, think about like, do you remember kind of early in the pandemic when people would do things like, okay, at a certain time you would stand on your porch and Mm -hmm. you would cheer for the workers or there were cities where people were like singing to the workers, that, that kind of stuff I reflect on and I go, oh man, what, wow, what just happened? But also there was something so beautiful about the world coming together to support the frontline workers. And, um, I, you know, I'm with you, Brian. There are things I want to take with me, like that special time with family, like I think supporting neighbors, like encouraging people to stay strong. Um, and then there are things I just want to like, nope, we're done. Let's move forward. Let's live life now. Let's go to the movies and the baseball games. Right. And, and let's not go backwards. But I do think it's important as we move forward to reflect on what we have all been through and just honestly thank the Lord for people who sacrificed so much to help fight Absolutely. this pandemic and thank the Lord that we're here now in this day. Absolutely. I think, like you said, remembering that as out of control as everything felt, like we're okay. Like we made it again, yeah. caveating that, that those yeah. who were most affected, like that's that's a whole nother more more important conversation. Absolutely. Uh, but culturally, like as the churches, as a nation, like we're bouncing back. Yeah. And there's a resiliency there that we can celebrate, but never forget what we've been through. That's right. So good. Well, next up, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Southern Baptist Convention, specifically what some of the abuse survivors are doing to help their voices be heard this week. And then we're also talking about marriage, marital satisfaction, and more. So be sure to stick around. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I am Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And, you know, the past few days and probably most of the week, we'll be touching on things that are happening at the Southern Baptist Convention because it is the largest denomination in evangelical Christianity. It has a lot of influence. And as we've been saying on the show this week, what's happening there feels like a microcosm of what's happening to the church in America, period. Like some of the conversations they're having about uh, women and sexual abuse, some of the conversations they're having about racism, some of the conversations they're having about other issues feel like the conversation that the world is having, or at least that the world of the church is having. And so I think there's a lot of us just sort of waiting with bated breath to see, you know, what decisions are going to be made, what changes are going to be made, because it definitely will impact the church going forward. 
Um, and so I know some of you aren't Southern Baptist folks, and you might be like, why do Brian and Aubrey keep talking about this? Right. But it is because uh, this denomination is so influential in this moment, as David French said yesterday, is the most important convention. How did he say it? Of 2021 or just no, ever? the last decade. Of the said. last decade. Yep. So uh, it's it's pretty significant for us as Christians to pay attention to and and see what the future of the church is going to look like, because a lot of decisions that are made this week will have ripple effects throughout the church in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I thought was important for us to talk about, Brian, is, you know, there's a there's some issues, obviously, with uh, reoccurring sexual abuse scandals within the Southern Baptist Convention. I heard someone recently compare it to the Catholic abuse scandals. Mm-hmm. And that, unfortunately, a lot of those stories have either been covered up or um, the women or men victims haven't been believed or worse of all, that they've painted these victims as villains in the story. That's right. And so some of the um, SBC sexual abuse survivors created a joint statement this week. This was signed by men and women who have survived sexual abuse from leaders in the SBC. Um, and they're basically asking for certain things. And what I thought is I would read just some of the things that they're asking for, but then ultimately let's have a conversation, Brian, about how the church can get better at supporting victims of abuse. Um, and so basically they came together. They're strongly urging that immediate actions are taken, that all SBC messengers support the motion of Todd Banker for the hiring of an outside organization to audit and assess abuse and the mishandling of abuse within de- the denomination. They're also asking that the executive committee waives all privileges, allowing guideposts complete and full access to all data and information, and that any future investigations or audits regarding sexual abuse within the SBC uh, include the services of Grace, which is a nonprofit organization that exists to help Christian groups confront sexual abuses, psychological abuses, and physical abuses. So basically what they're asking for is an outside investigation Mm -hmm. and for this to be taken seriously. Um, and Brian, there's there's been some, I guess, uh, debate about whether or not this should happen. Um, and, I, you know, I think, I guess the question is, what do you think? Do you think this outside investigation should happen? And then just as a church leader, how do you walk with victims of sexual abuse? Yeah, taking the first question, like I do... There, there does feel like uh, what I don't want to say is it's just cover up. That's why people don't want this. Like anytime mm. you as an enormous organization are wave, quote waiving all privileges, uh, allowing an outside organization complete and full access to everything. Yeah, you got to debate that like that is right. I don't want to undersell what's being asked. There, That's right? true. Like, That's true. Uh, so I understand there might be people or there likely are people on this executive committee and other places in leadership going, listen, I want to get to the bottom of this, but you're asking too much. Mm. So how do we get about that? So I do want to say that. But with that being said, I do think especially um with the vitriol that's been going on, the division, all that's been going on as we read about what's going on at the SBC right now around the sexual abuse scandals, 
it seems like an open investigation from the outside is the best way to lend credibility to anything here. And so therefore, mm. it feels like the right way. What does that exactly look like? I don't know. That's why you use these professional organizations right, like Guideposts right. or Grace, uh, it, because that's what they are s- supposed to do. I think in general, uh, a good premise right now for the SBC would be to say, uh, bringing things from darkness into light is going to only help the healing process. Right, right. And it's going to stop future abusers, right? Like if you keep things in the darkness, it emboldens abuse. That's if true. you bring things into the light, it emboldens those that have been abused yeah. to uh, find healing. And so I would think that it's we good, want Brian. to do that. Now, how do we walk a lot? You know, I think you're going to be able to speak a lot better to this. I tend to find in general, I'm speaking in broad terms here, that women can can speak much better and more clearly to this than men can. And so mm-hmm. I try to, because unfortunately, the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of those who have been abused tend to be women. Right. Uh, and the abusers tend to be male. Again, that's not 100% true, right. but right. Uh, but is often the case. Uh, but I think one thing that's really important is I think with abuse comes a lot of shame and yeah. comes a lot of uh, regret. And I think what you most want to do is try to um, help the abused go, this is not your fault, right? Mm. Like This is not something that you did. It's something that was done to you. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and that, that, um, and to try to alleviate that. Um, and then, you know, I do think as pastors, we quickly point people who have gone through abuse to professionals who deal with trauma. It's good. Uh, and that, how about you? What, what is kind of, I know you've walked with many people down this road. So, so what is helpful for us here? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think the first thing is to believe them when they tell you that story. I think that's part of what has happened in many churches is that, um, women and men as well who have been victims of abuse aren't believed because it's, you know, it's sort of one of those things where especially if it's from a church leader who's much beloved, you go, there's no way, there's no way that could be true. And so I, I think you have to suspend your disbelief and say to this person who's saying they've been abused, okay, I believe you. I'm going to listen to your story and take that story really, really seriously. Believe yeah women believe victims. And then I'm with you, Brian. I I think as soon as you can offer uh, that person the opportunity to get some professional help, because there are, especially abuse when there have been power dynamics at play, that is a lot to work through emotionally. Um, I'm, I'm with you also that there's so much shame that comes from abuse. And so just remind people who they are in Christ, that there is no shame for those who look to God. And um, I would say the other thing is, you know, we had Karen Swallow prior on the show last week, and she talked about specifically the Southern Baptist Church and the Southern Baptist Convention. And I think was reminding all of us that there is a lot of spiritual warfare taking yes. place, especially when it comes to abuse, because, you know, sexuality is such, such a good gift from God and the enemy has taken it and twisted it in such a horrific way. And so I think that's the other thing is just to be mindful as church leaders that this is a work of the enemy. And to be on our knees praying against any demonic stronghold, any, um, yeah, yeah, any effort that the enemy's using to try to destroy God's church and God's people. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with you, Brian. I, I think, you know, there are statistics say that one in four women will be the victim of 
either completed or attempted sexual assault by the time she's 18. Wow. And that's a pretty big statistic. Yeah. 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 And so I think for all of us to just be mindful of that, be sensitive to that, and then support victims as much as we can in our places of influence. Absolutely. So anyway, that's a heavy topic, but certainly one worth talking about. And we'll just continue to pray that the Lord leads the the leaders at the Southern Baptist Convention and the church worldwide to do a better job of, of walking with sexual abuse survivors. Next up, we're actually going to kind of turn the topic a little bit and talk about marriage, marriage satisfaction, and what is going on in marriage in 2021. So that's going to be a very interesting conversation. We hope you stick around for it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Do you have any plans tonight, Brian? Oh, do I have plans? Uh, it is my uh, my every other week elder meeting tonight. So hey, so it's going to get wild. There we go. Those are tonight. the plans. How about yourself? We are going to dinner with some friends tonight, so I am nice. looking forward to that. Yep, a new couple from our church, so that should be fun. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about marriage, but before we do that, Brian told me off the air for those of you who don't know that um he's got another dad joke. Brian has yes. been doing. We've been doing a sort of a little mini. I don't know. What would you call it? A mini series called dad joke or dud joke. And you're such a pastor. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. Everything's in series. And, um, so Brian, you, you've got a joke and really the point is for me to decide if it's funny or stupid, right? That's right. That's it. So, and now that we've opened this door, like the, I gave you one yesterday that I thought was just wonderful. It was amazing. Uh, Yes. And that one had to do with Forrest Gump. And then, uh, now that we've started this, I can't shut it off. Last night, my oldest daughter, <laughs> she was doing a crossword puzzle. And she said to me, hey, can you remind me, uh, what is a paradigm? And without thinking, I just said, about 20 cents. <laughs> <laughs> and she looked at me like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's that. That was bad. I okay. would give if that was the if that's the one you're throwing at me. No, it's not would, it. That's not okay, it. That's yeah, not I it. think that's a dud joke, but it's actually like on fire too. Because in it's the definitely moment, a dad was, in yeah. the moment, it was really funny. Okay, yeah. okay, here it is. It la- okay. Yesterday's is tough to follow, but I'm going for it. Okay, I'm going to go for it. Okay, all right, Aubrey, how do you follow Will Smith in the snow? <laughs> you follow <laughs> the Fresh Prince. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I got that. I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in. That's another dad joke. That's not a dud. That is a good one. You follow the fresh prince. That one took me a minute too because the like double meaning, cultural reference, solid, yes, solid dad joke, Brian. Two for two. Yeah, I'm. Imp- I feel like we need to like. We need to uh, keep record of all of these and put them together in a little booklet or we something. Do. We, need, we need like also we need like a scoreboard on, online, like uh, on our social media. That I'm up two zero right now. Yes. There we go. Yeah, that was a winner. I'm impressed. Well done. I'm going to share Thank that you. one with my kids and see what they say. <laughs> They're going to. I'll tell you what they'll say. <laughs> I'll be like, that's so stupid. So dumb. <laughs> all, right. all right, Brian, talk to us about marriage. 
All right, new Barna survey. And I feel like, uh, you know, it's kind of an evergreen topic. Like what makes strong marriages? Uh, what are the things that, and there's starting to be some surveys, especially coming out of COVID right now. And I got these just in an email from a group called Marriage Helper that did a survey in partnership with Barna. And anytime you, you, you see a Barna survey, you know that the research tends to be done well. Uh, and so this is the results of a new national survey on marriage and divorce of surveys conducted April 15th to May 10th, over 1,500 adults. Here's some of the stuff they found. Let me just throw a lot of numbers at you. Uh, And I wonder if any of these surprise you. We learned this. 73% of practicing Christians say they're very satisfied with their marriage. Okay, Mm. so 73% of practicing Christians. Uh, Gen X is at the highest divorce risk. Yet only 47% of Gen X say they are very satisfied with their marriage compared to 65% of millennials and 61% of boomers. Despite lower marital satisfaction, though, only 17% of Gen Xers have considered getting help to save or improve their marriage. Now, 54% of non-Christians said they are very satisfied in their marriage. And so this starts to break down. Uh, men are 13% more likely to say that they're very satisfied in their marriage than women are in this survey. And so what you get here is kind of a, uh, you, you get kind of a cross section of, of what difference does faith make, but also what difference does age make? And we talked mm. about this with the Bill and Melinda Gates divorce announcement a right. couple of weeks ago that there's this new national trend, uh, about the highest risk being something called gray divorce that people in the Gen X or, or older than that, uh, been married 20, 25 years. They are actually the highest, uh, divorce rates right now and the most increasing divorce rates. And you and I discussed how that's always surprises us because we always thought, you know, the hardest parts, the beginning, the first 10 years, if you get past that, you kind of are locked in. Right. 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 But right. instead they're saying, no, it's people whose kids are out of the house. They're kind of on that next stage of life. We're kind of throwing in the towel, being like, I don't really want to be be married anymore. And then one, you know, startling thing that this this uh, study shows is while that age group is of the highest risk, they're also the least likely to get help. And I think that that's somewhat generational. And so I think there's a lot here. So why don't you choose one, whether it's the faith aspect, the age aspect, the getting help aspect, which of these kind of stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, there is so much here. I think I'm pleased to hear that it was a high percentage. I can't remember the exact number you said of Christians who felt satisfied in their marriage. That was in the 80% or the 70, high 73 70%? or 74%. Yeah. yeah. Cause I mean, so, t- so often you hear it thrown around that the divorce rate within the church is the same as the divorce rate outside of the church. And that's right. always really devastating to me. And I'm sure there's statistics here about that, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that Christians, the majority of Christians, feel satisfied in their marriage because I do think marriage is a gift from God and marriage amongst Christians should be beautiful. It should be enjoyable. It should be joyful. Um, I'm a little Gen Xers are the most dissatisfied. Is that what it was? Uh, yes. 
they are the they are the most they've got the highest percentage of dissatisfaction amongst this survey. Yeah. So that's my age group. That's your age group as well. And I wonder, you know, it's it's, you sort of wonder why does it go back to because I don't know, you're just at an age when maybe you're getting you're like kind of having midlife crises and you're sort of wondering like, oh, is this all that life has for me? And so you're getting a little dissatisfied that way. Is it because you see yourself getting older and that feels scary? You know, I I'm curious what it is about Gen Xers that are making them the most dissatisfied. What are your thoughts about this? I think you hit a big one there. I think it's kind of midlife crisis. I think it's um, it is. You know, your kids are getting older, right? Like we're out of that stage where it's like my kids need me every minute of the day. And I think you come out of that and eventually you send your kids off to college or out of the house and you kind of look at your spouse if you haven't been doing the work over all these years and you kind of look at each other going, who are you? Like, what are are we married for? Like now that our kids are out of the house, what's the point? And, uh, you know, and I think so that's part of it. Um, I do think the generations older than you and I were just tended to be much more um, uh, driven by commitment. You know totally. what? We made this commitment, whereas we saw this when we were younger. Our generation's like, eh, you know, yeah, things exactly. change. Yep. <laughs> and so yep. Yep. Uh, I do think it's troubling, though, especially as we start to get older and, uh, you know, our generation starts sending kids to college and whatever else. I, I think this is a huge deal that the church... I think the church looks more towards younger people, like let's help them set their marriage off in a good way here. Uh, and we need to be thinking of ways. How do we build into the people who've been married 20 years? Yeah, that's, a, that's years. an interesting point. How do we revitalize, help revitalize the marriages or give life to the marriages that have? Yeah, they they've been there a while. And so maybe they're struggling in a way we never even thought about. I think that's Absolutely. a really good point. Yep, that's that's a really good point. Well, so, Brian, we just have a. A minute or so left here, but tell me, like in your church, how do you encourage married people? <laughs> yeah, uh, a we try to do things with you know, like not just a men's thing or a women's thing, but especially now that we're coming out of COVID, we try to do things together, right? Like not constantly separating people. But then I talk about marriage from the front a lot. I don't mm. do I don't do marriage series, or I never really have. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of times, if it's talking about relationships, if it's talking about forgiveness, if it's talking about whatever else it might be, I tend to try to insert, hey, and if you're married, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so trying to get, you know, the words of scripture to our marriages. How about yourself? What do you do? Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, I feel like we have done mari- marriage series in the past, but then, of course, you always sort of go, oh, does this hurt the single people's feelings? Right. And you want to be very mindful of that, right? Like, you never want to isolate anyone in the church. And so, I, I, you know, hearing this, it's making me think, like, oh, we need to be doing, like, maybe a marriage retreat or mm. sending people to a marriage conference that already exists or, you know, something like that, but just be more mindful because Kevin and I do a lot of premarital counseling with younger folks, but you're right in that we have sort of ignored current marriages that, you know, maybe someone's been married for 20 years. Right. You kind of think they're fine, but you have no idea what's going on. So I think this is a good call for all church leaders and all married people, you know, stay committed to your spouse, do the work you need to do, get with a therapist if you need to. There's no shame in that and ask the Lord for help because marriage is a gift from God and he'll give you what you need. Absolutely. 
Well, next up, we are going to end the show today by talking about what it means to be at your best as a pastor. But this isn't just for pastors. This is for all followers of Jesus. So we hope you stick around for that conversation. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. It's Tuesday afternoon. It's almost dinner time. It's almost time, Brian, for you to go to your elder meeting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be going out to dinner, so I'll eat some tacos in your honor yes. or something tonight so, since you don't get an exciting night. Well, to end the show today, a friend of the show, one of my professors actually at Wheaton College, shared a quote from Eugene Peterson. Uh, from his book, The Pastor. And I just wanted to read this because I thought it was really encouraging both for pastors and for really all followers of Jesus. So Brian, I'm just going to read it to you and let you respond. Okay, you ready ready. for this? Okay. You are at your pastoral best when you are not noticed. To keep this vocation healthy requires constant self-negation, getting out of the way. A certain blessed anonymity is inherent in pastoral work. For pastors, being noticed easily develops into wanting to Mm. be noticed. Many years earlier, a pastor friend of mine told me that the pastoral ego, and this is a quote, has the reek of disease about it, the relentless smell of the self. I've never forgotten that. That's from Eugene Peterson, again, being tweeted by Emily Hunter McGowan. Okay, so respond to that. Uh, a classic, classic Eugene Peterson right, right there. Right. I think that's why people are drawn to Eugene Peterson because, you know, he talks in these terms. Uh, this is a hard one. I think pastors, um, it is a high ego job, right? Mm. You stand on some version of a stage once a week. People ask you into their lives to help solve their problems. People want your blessing on things, right? Like there's a real temptation towards ego. And I think there's real draw to narcissists and people who need to be wanted, who need to be heard. Uh, And so Eugene Peterson here, uh, not only is he speaking truth, he's speaking difficult truth. Because Aubrey, I do think a lot of people out there might be thinking, I thought the pastor, like a a good pastor is not anonymous, that his people know him or her, Hmm. that they are well, you know, he or she is in their lives. And uh, and so I think you got to kind of wrestle through that a little bit. But, you know, especially in the age of Twitter that we live in and stuff, I'm surrounded by pastors online who it sounds like are constantly wanting to be heard totally. and are constantly wanting to be noticed, who constantly want a bigger platform. Yes. And it, ironically, he had a huge platform, but it feels like Eugene Peterson is constantly pushing that platform away and yeah. that influence away. Uh, and so what do you think, though, anonymity that he's talking about looks like? Because I can't be I can't be searching out anonymity in like never being with my people. Right. And never yes. contacting yes. my people. So so what do you when you read him uh, talk about uh, blessed anonymity is inherent in pastoral work? Uh, what do you think he's saying there? Yeah, I think it's a posture more about that uh, the glory belongs to Jesus mm. and not to you. I think that's Scred. the blessed anonymity, right? It's again, you should be serving the people that you serve. You should be in their lives. You should be in the hospital when they need hospital visits. You should be praying for them. You should be walking with them through their difficult things. Like, I think that's the nature of the role of being a pastor, especially a shepherd. Um, 
but it can't become about you. And in this day and age, you know, I'm sure this is not a unique temptation to this day and age, but it certainly feels like a unique era that we're living in where the temptation is right there, where you could so easily try to professionalize your pastoral calling, celebritize your pastoral calling, and like put all your sermons online and tweet things about how, I mean, you're not even tweeting things about how awesome you are, but maybe you think you've made this really profound statement. And so you're going to tweet it because you want people to follow you. And you can easily forget like, oh, wait, (laughs) My call is not to become this celebrity or this well-followed person with this massive platform. Literally, my call is to point people to Jesus and not to me. And I, you know, I know that there are so many faithful pastors out there that literally are just putting their head down, doing the work, serving God, and they have no pastoral ego whatsoever. But there is something you know, about if you get a little bit of notice as a pastor, especially if people really like your speaking or they mm-hmm. really like something you've done, that suddenly that can become the feedback you're looking for. That's right. And that's, I think, just something, you know, we can give grace to ourselves for that. But it is something to be mindful of like, oh, wait, my ego likes that a little bit too much. Lord, you know what? I'm giving this to you. You take this. This is some desire I have that is to be. I don't know, to have power, to be famous, to be loved. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to surrender that to you, God. Would you restore me and remind me whose servant I'm actually, I actually am, you know? That's well put. That's well put. I do think, uh, we all know what, what a pastor is supposed to be, right? We read it in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and this isn't just a pastor thing. Like I do think the follower of Jesus, you could, you could remove pastor and just kind of put, Christian in here, right? Like, are you looking for, Mm. you know, are you looking to be the, uh, the subject of glory? Are you looking to be the subject of praise or is, are you trying to point people to Jesus? Right. When, when we see people in scripture, uh, Jesus obviously being one of them, but when you look at even the apostles, right, when you look at Paul, um, he talks about how he's not even a good speaker and how, uh, (laughs) right, right, right. Like his stuff is dull and that like in the dullness, it shows the power of the cross. Like I think all too often we think too highly of ourselves and go, it's about me. People coming mm. to Christ is about me. Uh, and th- there's a lot of motivations to pastoral work. A lot of things drive us, but we'd be lying if we didn't say that ego is at the top of that list for a lot of Certainly. pastors that we know. And I, I don't want to just point fingers. It is for me at times. Yeah, just going, yeah. man, it's really nice when people tell me how how much they enjoyed that sermon and not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but, or it's really nice to be needed and wanted and, um, and uh, people want me there at their darkest moment or whatever else it might be like that can be intoxicating. Mm. And uh, then when you, when you exemplify or you amplify that with, uh, you know, a bigger stage or uh, books and speaking and being asked yeah. to cut, let us fly you out here to do this. Let us do that. Or even a radio show, whatever else it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be really hard to kind of keep um, to keep uh, our, our, um, you know, feeding, uh, feeding into ourselves that it's not about me to keep our own ego at bay and our own arrogance. And instead say, you know what, this is about Jesus and praise be to Jesus that he's given me this ability to speak into people's right. lives. Yeah. But I, I need to consistently point people to him. And in yes. that way, uh, remain anonymous, kind of like John the Baptist, right? John the That's Baptist good. says it's got to be more about him than about me. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's such a good example. Whether you're leading a church or you're, you know, Christian in the marketplace or you're a stay at home mom, like I think that's the call for all of us, right? To die to ourselves, point people to Jesus. And if, you know, if this relentless smell of the self gets a little bit too stinky, just to continue to surrender that back to the Lord. Cause we've mm-hmm. all seen, Brian, when the pastoral ego gets dangerous. And I think this is what we've been kind of saying at the common good for a long time is we're longing to see pastors, including ourselves, not become egotistical pastors, but become pastors who really are humble and pointing themselves to Jesus. So anyway, that's a good encouragement for all of us. He must increase. We must decrease. Um, Anyway, hope that encourages you, especially if you're struggling today. And remember that God is graceful and he will help us. Um, you know, when our ego gets the better of us. And it does because we're human beings. Well, that's a Tuesday afternoon. We hope you have a wonderful evening planned. We're so grateful that you've been hanging out with us. And we hope you join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. here on The Common Good. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson. Again, you've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.